Alrighty.
know I love you, or I'll say, you know, you're the best thing I ever did. You know, aside from finding and falling in love with Jesus, he is the best thing that I ever did. And I'm very blessed to have him. And um, sometimes we, we can constantly correct our kids, and we can constantly tell them what they're doing wrong. But remember, even in correction, make sure you're telling them the good things. Tell them what they're doing right. Tell them what you're proud of. Or just thank you. The way you held that garbage bag when I dumped that in there, I appreciate that. I couldn't have done this job without you. So remember, it's the little things that you say that kind of shape who they become. So if mothers, if you want your sons to be good husbands, you have to show them. It's how you talk to your husband, but it's also how you talk and correct your children. So just remember that hopefully that's a blessing to you guys because it's a blessing to me. As one who was, I was born a contentious individual from the womb. I can, I can relate to that, that uh, reminder that nobody wants to be around a contentious person all the time. It's mostly better off to go and hide. And uh, so that's a good word right there. And also a good word about setting an example. And, and that wasn't necessarily in the verses so much as that was how the Lord spoke to your heart. And yeah. that, that impresses me that we can share that with one another. So all right, who else has a word? Something you saw this week, something you heard this week. Sometime the Lord said to you, hey, pay attention to that. That's important. Anybody? Yeah. Yep, all right. You want to go first? All right, and I'll go over there after this. Yeah, nice and loud. Anyway, I, I don't know if uh, anybody's been paying attention on Sunday during the sermon. Been paying attention to your Bible study, you're doing them. Uh, but I just noticed how um, during the uh, armor of God on Wednesday, every other Wednesday, and doing. Uh, Revelation on Tuesday, and then the sermons recently, how they kind of all flowing together for me. I don't know about you, but they're flowing together for me. But uh, funny how in Joshua, how God prepared his people as they entered the promised land, and then after they entered, basically the last two sermons been on spiritual warfare. Yeah. Basically. And uh, how, how, how the enemy is out there, and and what they're doing to the Israelites. But anyway, uh, this past Tuesday night, we talked on uh, in Revelation 2 about the churches, the seven churches, and, and how uh, Jesus is talking to them, and he's saying, I have this against you. I have this against you. And the things that are going on, because they're failing in some, spot, in some spots, even though they're Christians, they're believers, there's some things that they're lacking or things they need to strengthen, he says he has an ear let here. And uh, he went in the uh, in the Bible study on uh, Armor of God Monday. Uh, I was reading and uh, I'm thinking I gotta remember I'm getting old now. But anyways, it's oh it's talking about the things we need to get rid of. Uh, the things you're allowing to get in. And that's what Jesus talked about in Revelation. The things that they allow to get in. And talking about in Joshua, they're in the promised land. They're believers. They, they came into the promised land. They're believers, and God is showing them how to get rid of the things that are in. And um, it talked about the next day about your core strength. About working out, you know, anybody that doesn't work out, if your stomach ain't strong, you, you, 
the rest of you ain't going to be very strong. And they're talking about your core strength, your inner strength, your relationship with Christ. Those things, if your core strength is good, then those things won't bother you. Those things on the outside. But it's, it's just, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's speaking to me, it's talking to me, and it's showing me a lot in just, and it, it's, it's amazing what I'm getting out of three different things and how they're all flowing together. So I encourage you to get in a Bible study. Pay attention during the sermon because you don't know what you might run into when you're doing a Bible study, how that will tie in together and it's going to help strengthen you. Amen. Good work. Let's see how my voice does. <laughs> Eight years of propane can do that to your throat. But, uh, so I just saw, uh, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It just isn't so powerful. It's going to catch someone because it, it hits every basis there is. But it says, We give no opportunity for stumbling anyone so that the ministry will not be blind. But as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything. So they have a list. By great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, times of hunger, purity, knowledge. See how it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not just all good. Patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, sincere love, message of truth, power of God, through weapons of righteousness on the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, deceivers yet true, unknown yet recognized, dying and look we live, being disciplined yet not killed, grieving yet always rejoicing, Poor yet enriching many, and this is the last part, as have nothing yet possessing everything. And, um, you know, you just, you never know what your spiritual gifts are to you to find out, you know. One of my gifts is encouragement. And people think encouragement is saying something positive, but encouragement really is, is, is finding courage in others, finding something inside that they did not know they have. And, um, when I get out of that scripture all the time, and I tell people, you know, to encourage and re-encourage, to refine, redefine, and remind who we are in Christ and who we're not, and who God is and who we're not. That final verse is everything. It says, yet possessing, or yet having nothing, but possessing everything. And I'm like, well, that's unfinancially, mentally, sometimes unstable. How am I possessing everything? And then I think about it, there's only one thing I can possess that has everything. And that's in Christ. And that's not just in Christ, but Christ in me as well. What he's doing in my life, what he's doing in my heart, what he's doing. See, when we come out of this, we come out of this world, we're born, the first thing everybody looks at it, what we can do. But when we're born into the kingdom of God, looks, he looks at us and says, what's inside of you is what counts. God is an inner work, not an outer work. And so, in these last 13 years, whether I had fame, fortune, popularity, all this stuff that this material world has, cannot pay what God has done eternally here and inside my heart. And I've always told people, you can break my spirit, but you can't break the Holy Spirit that's inside of me. You can hurt me, you can crush me, but he still hasn't given up on me. And I encourage everybody here, this is what I've seen. I've, the last eight years I've worked 
I try not to be long, but when I worked in Northwest, I see 1,200 people work there. And some praise God, some don't, some care less about God, and they earn their paychecks, and they spend it on nothing, and they're not just picking on people, but I see a picture of them. You know, yet they still do their job. They agree to disagree, and they come together, and we run that place. And now sometimes I'm just wondering, what if 10 or 5 or 12 or two brothers and sisters in Christ, what if the church agreed to disagree, came together, and like how they earn a paycheck, we're taking our kingdom, our resources to God, we're putting our account heavy eternally, watch what we could do. Watch what we could do for each other. Watch what we could do together. And I know it's easier said than done, but it's done in Him. I mean, yeah, it seems impossible, but it's possible. So when I encourage you, I encourage me. I told people this. I'm strong right now. But I guarantee you there's going to be time. I'm not strong. You better pick me back up. We need each other. We can't do this on our own. I know deep down we do this on our own. And I'll be really quick. But I'll just give you the simplest example. Even when you put gas in your vehicle, you yes, you paid for it. You bought it. But you didn't get an oil rig and get that gas. Everybody matters and everything matters. So I encourage you, I encourage me, you know, how much we need each other. Because even though the body, we all have a heart, a mind, I'll be 30 seconds. I mean it. But I want you to understand this. We are all different hearts. We are all different minds. We are all different personalities. In fact, when I read the word, it talks about people that are really, really high up there in Christ. But then there's just those who just got born again. We're all different. We're all growing spiritually different. So we need each other. So I ask you, I ask myself, you know, what are we going to do for each other? Because we can't do this on our own. Amen. It's a good word. It's a good word. And I do love that list and the fact that it's interesting. Not only is it both good and bad, the good and bad throughout the whole list is intermixed. And he doesn't list all the good first and all the bad first, or all the bad first and then all the good. Right? He, it's all intermixed, and that's a, way, that's a good picture of what life is like. And I don't know, maybe that, that was pretty inclusive. But that's a really good word, what we're going through. And, you, and we don't always know what the other person is going through. And so we still have to step up. We still have to respond. We still have to figure it out. We might have to ask. It's a good question to ask. How can I help you in your walk? How can I, you know, where, where can I weigh in? What difference can I make? Is there something? Not, not is there something, because that's a yes or no. People will usually say no, but where? Or when can I help you? You know, and almost uh, salespeople learn not to ask those yes or no questions because they just say no, and after they say no three times, they're supposed to stop. But he said, "How can I help you? Where can I make a difference?" You know, and if they won't give you a way, then show up and do something that almost seems trivial: send a birthday card, send a word of encouragement, make a phone call, make a text, those kind of things. And you don't know. I, in fact, this morning I was going through my my voicemail box and deleting some old voicemails, and I found two very encouraging voicemails that someone had left for me that I had listened to before, but I forgot they were there. And when I was, this morning, I was praying, and I, you know, I had a rough weekend, I had stomach issues, whatever, and they, they were more encouraging to me this morning, even though one of them was over a month old, than they were when I got them. And so you never know when that's going to make a huge difference. All right, any further word? Anybody else has something you saw this week? You really want to say, yeah, I got to say this? Okay. I'm going to tell you the object lesson rather than do it really quick. Uh, no, the Lord said, no, I can't do that. Okay, so we're going to do the object lesson really quick. So I need four volunteers to get up out of their seat. There's one, Tommy, Autumn, and 
first. Okay. So we're talking about silence and solitude as a discipline. Okay. Silence and solitude as a discipline. All right. So somebody is going to be the disciplined person that's going to practice. Okay. David, raise hand first. So David, stand right there in the middle if you would. All right. And then if you, the three of you would surround David. You have to be on all sides of him. I know there's only three of you, so step forward a little bit so somebody uh, can see you. Okay. Can see you now. All right. All right. So, how how comfortable does that feel, David? You feel comfortable right now? No. Okay. So David David feels a little distracted by the fact that they're all standing and staring at him, right? So, how could you make it better? No, you can't do that. That's leaving the discipline. This is the area of silence and solitude. You have to stay in there, brother. You got to hang in there. How could you make it better? Okay, that's a little better, but technically they're supposed to be surrounding you, so move back a little bit. Okay, so there you go. All right, that doesn't actually work. All right, so you tried to turn yourself around. What else might you do? Okay, let them turn you around. Okay, there you go. Okay, all right, now, does that feel better? Okay, so this is an object lesson about distractions that occur when you try to practice this discipline of silence and solitude. The people in your life, the reality is the people in your life are distractions, okay? And... You can sit there and you can go, oh, well, my mother needs this done, and my father wants that, and my brother wants that, and my brother's having this problem, my sister's having that problem. And in your silence and solitude, you can begin to be distracted by all those things that look like they're staring at you. While I'm taking this moment of silence with God, here is my sister wondering why I'm not showing up to fix her air conditioner, and here's my brother wondering why I'm not showing up to help him fix his car, and so-and-so's got this struggle, why I'm not helping them find peace, and the list goes on, right? So here's how, in the silence, in the discipline of silence and solitude, you handle that. You lift up each one of those persons in prayer and then turn them over to God. And it's kind of like you turn around their facing so that now they're dealing with their problem and God is helping them deal with their problem. And when you're done with your silence and solitude, if they're not finished, you can go and help them. But rather than having them kind of, those things kind of nagging at you, you turn each one around and turn it over to the Lord. Okay, thank you very much, guys. Right? So as you're practicing silence and solitude, this, it happens. And I want to say this to you, and this may or may not be your experience, but it's been mine. I think the enemy, but, and I don't, I don't believe it's Satan himself. I think he's more limited than that, so he's not going to tend to each one of us. Right? But his schemes and also evil spirits, which are much more uh, plentiful. There may be more evil spirits than there are human beings. It's very likely, in fact, still to this date. But anyway, they're much more plentiful. I think they bring to mind those concerns that we have to steal silence and solitude as a discipline. So you have to right away arm yourself with the armor of God, yes, and I can get all the pieces, but this is, this is the truth and this is what faith tells us and, and so on, that you need to turn those things around so that rather than them reaching into your silence and solitude, it's taken care of for the moment. It's in the hands of the Lord, right? And then you take your time of silence and solitude with the Lord. You pray or you listen to what God has to say to you and so on. Otherwise, there's going to be that many voices that's going to interfere with your quiet. Okay? And then it's hard to have that quiet, and then it's hard to hear God. Even if God's shouting, right? You might be going, man, I've got to go fix that. I'm going to solve that problem and solve that. And in there, God's going, here, I want you to do this. And you're like, oh, i got to do this, and i got to do this. And God's like, I want you to go do this. And I go, oh, but I got to go do this, and I got to go do that, right? And I'll never forget, last illustration, when Sherry and I were thinking about moving to Michigan years ago, and it felt like the Lord was maybe leading us to do that, I had spent two and a half days praying, God, is this something we're supposed to do? We, we knew that the, the timing wasn't really right, the finances weren't really right, but we'd gone up and visited the restaurant, and we felt like 
she could make a huge difference there, and God was maybe potentially calling us to do that. And uh, God had not spoken to me, and I said, God, are we supposed to go to Michigan? Are we supposed to do this? And they, got, they called us up, and they said, we need your answer right now, which was two days early. It was a Saturday, and we're supposed to be on Monday. And, and I said, God, are we supposed to do this? And God said, yes, go. And I said, no, but seriously, are we supposed to do this? <laughs> Okay, so when God speaks to you, it's really easy for you to impose your own, oh, but there's so many things I have to worry about, right? And so in silence and solitude, you're going to practice this discipline. You can use a piece of paper if you need to do that, so that if you're a forgetful type person, you can go, so-and-so has this problem, write it down, you pray for the Lord to help them, for them to have the wisdom they need, so on, and you've you written it out, and you just dismiss it. Forget it for that period of time. You give it over to the Lord, you forget it. And if you've got ten things, you do it with ten things. And if you need a notebook to get through all your things, then you have not been practicing the silence and solitude discipline often enough. Or the prayer discipline often enough. If there's 30 things on that list that would stop you from being quiet and listening to God, then you have not been doing it often enough. But you will get caught up very quickly. Because the next time you'll already have the list written and you'll be able to go over, you can just take that page and say, Lord, all of these things, right now I pray, you take care of them, help them. I just want to dismiss all of that right now. And you can do it all in one fall swoop. You don't even have to read off the list anymore. And then you take your time of silence and solitude with the Lord. Then you get quiet. And then if it's the word of God that's coming up to you, or if it's God speaking that's coming up to you, then you pay close attention. Right? But if it's somebody else's concern, again, add it to the list, pray over it, let God take it, and deal with it for now. Now when you're done, let's be very realistic, because there was another illustration wasn't there. What if they had turned back around? What if they had insisted on inward facing? He turned them around. What if they had insisted on turning back to him? Then what you need to do is say, number three on this list is, you know, my sister needs her air conditioner, and I know how to do that. I know exactly what it needs. Now I'm done taking my time to solace and solitude. I don't know that anybody else has that. Anybody else can take care of it. So I'm going to call her real quick and say, hey, did that get taken care of? No, it didn't. All right, I'll be there in 15 minutes. All right? That's how you take things off the list then. For the next time when you sit down, you don't just take that list and crumple it up and throw it away. Because those are legitimate needs, maybe, that somebody has. Now, if they're not legitimate, then you don't have to pick them back up. If it's just somebody whining about something that is no big deal, then maybe there's nothing you can do about that. And you just encourage them in some other way and move on. But if they are legitimate concerns, you don't throw that paper away. You pick it back up and you take care of those things. Because we don't want to dismiss, as we're talking about loving one another, we don't want to dismiss opportunities to do that. Okay, so I wanted to share that with you as you're practicing silence and solitude. My experience has been that the evil spirits that's, that attacked me when I tried to take silence and solitude throw up everyone else's concerns. I can tell you that in about a, out of about 100 times, maybe 30 or 40 times, I never got around to having a moment of silence with the Lord because I was so busy praying over the concerns of so many other people that I knew about what they were going through. Don't let that happen to you. Get on it, pray on it, and then get on to practicing that discipline of silence and solitude, which is scripturally based. Okay, let's pray together at this time, and then we're going to have our time and offerings, go back to worship a little bit, and go to the Word in classes and other Father in heaven, you are uh, speaking into the individuals that are here, and some of these folks, they brought things that touched their heart, and they shared with us how they arrived at that conclusion and they shared with us the connection to your word, and they shared with us uh, what it is that you're trying to say to us, all, all in just like a very short period of time. And that's really powerful, God, that you would use your people in this place to speak up. And I hope that those of us who hadn't heard anything in the last seven days have definitely heard things in the last seven minutes. 
For you are an awesome God who loves your people. You carry with us. You spend time with us. You speak to us. And that is way better than we deserve. It is merciful and gracious toward us. And so, Lord, I ask you to help us as we try to practice balance and solitude, as we try to listen to what you have to say, as we try to strengthen ourselves as you strengthen us. And we go out and live what we have learned in here, but not stop learning from you, no. Not stop hearing from you. Not stop setting aside time for you. Lord, we don't want to stop loving. We do care very much about the people that are around us and the concerns that they have, but we also know that you have told us that we can set aside time for you. And so, Lord, we just pray that we do that with discipline and diligence and patience. As we go down the tithes and offerings, we ask you to bless every penny, every dollar, every bit, every effort, every sweat, every blood, every tear. For those who are giving sacrificially today, above and beyond their tithe, Lord, we know that, that that's hard. It's a hard commitment to make. It's about believing that you will take care of it. And um, Lord, we ask you to give them that special comfort that only you can. And we ask you to then take the monies and apply them in a godly way, in a way that you would in our body and throughout the world, to spread the gospel, to reach people for you, because it's not too late. There's still time. There's still time for people to believe. And that's what we desire. That's what you desire. We pray our hearts be together in that. And then as we continue to worship you, receive the honor and glory today. Strengthen us that we might do it as well as we might for your glory. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All of you, this thing is coming up here. I want to interrupt. Oh. Uh, tom tomorrow, everybody knows what day it is, right? It's a holiday. It's President's Day. And it's Dan's birthday. So President Dan Stevenson has a birthday tomorrow. Anyway, uh, uh, a lot of you get the day off. I don't get the day off. Um, yeah, we wish. It's a holiday, but not everybody's a holiday for everybody. But, but anyway, as a church, which Tony... Tony spoke to, as a united body of believers, we have a pastor who, who is also a teacher, and we're supposed to listen to him, uh, respect him, and honor him. So this, in honor of his birthday, we just got a little gift, gift for him. For, for, this is from all of us. If you want to give him something else, that's, that's on you. But on behalf of the church, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you all.
Going right along with uh, our theme of silence and solitude, uh, as I was preparing this sermon, the Lord got my attention to pay attention, pay attention specifically to something that's in the text that I think I, I might have missed. We might have missed. As we were studying the book of Joshua and going through it, we might have missed it. So we're going to do something real quick, and we're going to see, we're going to put this to the test. All right, so you've been in here. Uh, this last Sunday, uh, RJ stood before us and preached a sermon, uh, and essentially the sermon was being on the winning team, and he preached through a text uh, that included the kings and what happened to the kings and how it all sort of ended up for them. The week before that, I read through that text to, to the, almost to the end of it, and so we've heard it twice, and then if you're knowing that we're preaching on the book of Joshua, I would encourage you, I've always encouraged you to be reading and ready to go. So I would like now someone, anyone, to volunteer and tell me as much as you can remember of the story from the moment at which the, uh, the head king, if you will, or the number one king, called his buddies together to fight against the Gibeonites. Tell me what happened up until the end of what happens at the cave. Somebody tell me, like, summarize that story for us. Let's see how we've been doing. From the, from the moment they called the allegiance together up until right after the cave. The end of the cave. The second cave, if you will. Second time at the cave. Anybody? All right, somebody start it off. How does it begin? Well, they, when they call the alliance together, they, they go and attack uh, the Correct. And uh, the Gibeonites, they uh, reach out to, to uh, Joshua yep. and his army of the Israelites to come and help them, to join with them. Right. Because they had an alliance together as well. So okay. um, in their time of need, they called out to them. And, um, Joshua and the Israelites responded. They, they responded. They attacked them from the other side. God said that they would, that your uh, enemies would be in your hand. Yep. I give them over to your hand. So they basically hunted them down and, and pursued them and yep. they just fled to the cave. Right. their enemies to the cities so that uh, they wouldn't breach the cities. God commanded them to pursue them so they didn't breach the cities. Uh, and then they brought the kings out after all that was done. And yep. Joshua made a very public display of you know, having his leaders come and put their foot on the necks of the, the kings. And yep. then he had them executed. Had good. Had a cool speech, yeah. Okay, good. So you had them executed, right. And, of course, public execution, and then they were hung on a tree for five, five different trees. Each got their own tree. I thought that was interesting. Each got their own tree until sundown and taken down, and they were thrown back in the cave, and that's where they wind up. <clears throat> so there's a couple of details in there as far as how Joshua got there and like that, but that was a really good retelling of the story, right? And so I ask you, how many kings were in the alliance? Five kings in the alliance, right? There are five kings. How many kings were in the cave? And how many kings died on the day that Joshua executed the kings? Did you say five? Say it again. Say six? Okay. Six is the correct answer. And that's the king that we might have missed. There's a sixth king that dies that day that we might have missed. Okay? And so we're going to read that verse. It's at the tail end of the story. All right? And then we're going to hear some lessons, if you will, 
that come out of that. So you already got the story. I don't have to go back and read it to you because we did, uh, Ron gave us a pretty good retelling of it up until this point. All right. And it says, um, verse 27, so where's the tail end of that story? It says, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees. They threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Mekedah on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed it, and every person who was in it, he left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Mekedah, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And so the king of Mekedah becomes the sixth king who died on that same day when they empty out the cave and kill the five kings who were in the allegiance. And so there's some interesting things. First of all, in that first part where we read about the five kings, um, the five kings is a good illustration of how people usually fall before the might of God. Um, we see the king's fear. We see the king's fight. Ultimately, we see the kings surrendering their allies as they go and hide in the cave for their own um, salvation. And then the rest of their allies are all slaughtered all the way across the countryside by Joshua's army and by God. We see the kings hide in the cave. We see them be trapped in the cave and then ultimately to be exposed as no king whatsoever, having no authority under God whatsoever and being publicly destroyed. Okay? So we see that is how God often deals with those who are God's enemies, and it's how God's enemies often respond to God. And whatever phase they are found in, you might find them in a fear, or you might find them fighting back against God. Um, note that when they fought back against God, though they didn't attack God, and they didn't attack Joshua and the Israelites, they attacked the Gibeonites. So it's often, they don't, when they fight against God, they don't attack God, they attack God, the allies of God's allies, if you will. But anyway, we find them fighting sometimes, we find them surrendering their allies, cutting off people in their lives, we find them hiding out, trying to stay out of, out of view, trying not to get picked off while their allies are all being destroyed. Then we find them trapped, then exposed, and then shown publicly to be no king whatsoever. And so we see that in the lives of the five kings, but there is also something to be in the life of the sixth king. Okay? Note that those, th those things, the fear, the fight, the surrender, the hide, the trap, the exposed, and the final uh, public execution of those kings may apply to Satan will eventually apply to Satan for sure the entire process. Evil spirits, again, will eventually apply to them for sure the entire process. The world will eventually apply to them for sure the entire process. And even ourselves, as we sometimes have done that before we got saved or even after we've gotten saved, we find ourselves doing some of those things. So it can apply to all of those things as a response, whether it be fear, fight, surrendering allies, hiding, trapped, exposed, or finally um, destroyed and no longer a king. All of that applying to the first five kings can apply to evil spirits, demons, the world system, etc. But this sixth king, he was not a part of the open rebellion. Notice they do not call on him to join the fight. Now, there might be a variety of reasons why that's true. Um, it wasn't because he didn't have power or authority. He was a king, and Mekedah was not a small city or a small province, and it was a, a, a land of hardy people because it was an up-and-down land with crooks and caves and whatever. Mekedah means... Uh, it stands for like house of shepherds. And so we're talking about ruddy, physical, powerful folk, generally speaking. They had a decent-sized army. So it wasn't that they didn't have capabilities to join, but for some reason when the king reached out to his allies to join this against Joshua and the Israelites, he did not invite the king of Makeda to join the fight. And so it could be that he was not receptive to it. He was not ready for it. He was not paying attention to, the, to the, that other king as an authority figure, whatever. 
we see that the king of Makeda does not hide. He doesn't wind up in a cave like the others did. Um, and he did not expressly abandon his allies if they didn't request for him to join, but he doesn't, um, he doesn't send his armies out there to be slaughtered and then hide in a city or anything like that, so he doesn't expressly abandon his allies. But we see that he died like the king of Jericho. Now, right away, someone's going to say, well, he died like the king of Jericho because he lived in the promised land, because God ordered the people of God to destroy all the people of the promised land. And someone might say, well, they just killed him because, you know, it was convenient. Right? And so the wrath of God was already pouring out against God's enemies that day, and the army was already killing a lot of people that day, and so they just went on ahead and destroyed Makeda, even though they were having this public display of execution of these other five kings. Um, and you might make that argument, but even if you did, it would be founded on the fact that these people are being destroyed for a reason. Right? All the people in the promised land are being destroyed for a reason. And the reason they're being destroyed is because God has given them a long period of time to repent from the sin that they have. They knew of God. You realize the Canaanites are descendants from Noah. So their ancestors told the stories that go back into what we would be considered the fall. Right, all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. They had the stories. They knew of God. And yet, they were worshiping a lot of false gods. Because we always quote one of the worst is Molech because it required the burning of the firstborn child in the fire to burn them alive in the fire. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. And that would be enough itself for them to be destroyed. But the bottom line is that they have allowed to persist inside their borders, worship of false gods for now over 400 years. And that's 400 years after God began to make a concerted, powerful appeal to them because he says that the Israelites would be trapped in Egypt for a long time because he wasn't dead, done yet. He was going to give the, the Canaanites the opportunity to repent of their sin. So he's like, they, they, their sin has not come to full measure. That's the phrase that God used. It's not come to full measure yet. So I'm going to give some, them some more time. So for the last 400 years, God has appealed to them. He's been working in their circumstances, maybe vocally or otherwise. He had people amongst them there was a chance that they might repent, and they did not. And so even if you say, well, he just, he just destroyed them because they're in the promised land, you have to realize it is the underlying sin of this people that makes them a candidate for total destruction. And don't forget that there's already been a people, a powerful people, with multiple cities that now is not going to be destroyed. Granted, it's because they, they handled it a little differently. They deceived, and God's enemies sometimes do that. They found a way to deceive God's allies and make a pact with God's ally, but then, ultimately, they still would have been destroyed. They come and they say, we give, you, we give ourselves over to you as complete servants. Do with, us, do with us as you will. If you still want to destroy us, then destroy us. Whatever you want to do, we'll do that. We are totally submitted to you and to God, and because of that, then they are spared, and they become servants in the temple. Right? So we already know that there is a large people, and who were they? They were the Gibeonites. They were the people that these four kings were called together to attack. Right? A large people that were not going to be destroyed now. And they are borderland allies with Makeda. And so Makeda could possibly have refused an initial invitation because they didn't want to attack the Gibeonites. Because they thought there was still hope for them or whatever. We don't know why they did it. But the point is, while they were on the list for destruction, so were some other people who are actively finding, and we'll find another kingdom later, that finds another way out of being destroyed. <clears throat> and so, they... This king, the king of Makeda, dies like the king of Jericho. Now, <clears throat> right away you want to say, okay, well, how did the king of Jericho die? If you were paying attention or if you went back and read it in preparation for today, good for you. If not, what you'll find out is in the account of the destruction of Jericho, it does not say how the king of Jericho died. It doesn't say. 
Like it doesn't say they hung him on a tree, it doesn't say they threw him in a cave, whatever. So the difference between the death of the king of Jericho and the death of the, king, the five kings in the cave is marked. A considerable difference. There's no putting of the foot on the throat, there's no hanging of them on the tree, throwing back in the cave where they were hiding, right? There's no poetic justice. Does that follow? However, he says he died like the king of Jericho. And so what do we know about how the king of Jericho died? Well, he died having his people completely wiped out, his kingdom completely wiped out, his town completely wiped out, the base of his power completely destroyed. Okay? So that's how he died. That's all we know about how he died. So there's more, can we say, there is more outward impact on his people, on his armies, on his resources, right? Because what is a king after all? A king is a person who reigns over a kingdom. If there's no kingdom, there is no king. If you just completely destroy the kingdom, the king is gone and dead, essentially, even if he survives in exile. We do see that happening occasionally in history where a king will survive in exile for decades or, or a long period of time, and they still call him a king, but they really say, you know, he's the former king of Jerusalem or he's the former king of somewhere. But the king of Makeda and the king of Jer Jericho, neither one of them do that. As far as we know, they do not abandon their people. We don't know if they could not abandon their people or not. They may have been trapped and couldn't abandon their people. But they stay and they fight with their kingdom and their kingdom is destroyed right alongside of them. And that's all we know about that. But he made a point of mentioning that. Now that's significant too because if you went on in the passage, which we're not going to do today, but in preparation for next week, be aware, when they go on, as they destroy each kingdom, the phrase reoccurs says, well, he destroyed them the same way that he destroyed the king of so-and-so. And so the next one would be, this one's done in the way he did the king of Jericho. And then they go and destroy Libna. <coughs> and, they, and then from Lashish, and Lashish is destroyed like Libna, and so on. So each king is destroyed in a similar way as the one before. And so I want, I want you to hear this. When you see that phrase that says it was destroyed in the same way as the king of Jericho, just realize that means decisively, completely. Totally, without mercy. That's how God and the, and the people, Joshua and the army, destroyed these kings. Decisively, completely, without mercy. You follow? So, that being said, this king, this sixth king, who is destroyed decisively, completely, without mercy, has sin in his background. Well, we have sin in our background, right? So it's ancestral sin. It goes back to the beginning. In fact, Oh, you know where his sin comes from originally? Adam and Eve. Same place ours does. So we have a great similarity to him, don't we? Now, if you would say, and if you couldn't really relate to this fear, fight, surrender allies, hide, trapped, exposed, finally completely deposed as a king, if you, if you couldn't find yourself somewhere on that list, then there is one last possibility. There is one last place where people sometimes find themselves, and I submit to you that people who don't know Jesus often find themselves in this place, or at least they think they are in this place, and they think it is an excuse as to why God will not punish them. And this place is this. I didn't do it. So, well, did you know about it? Yeah, I knew about it, but I didn't do it. Right? It's not just, I was just following orders, because when you say I was just following orders, that means you were, you were involved. You were complicit in what happened. So, uh, in the Holocaust in, in Germany and, and surrounding countries in World War II as they were killing millions of people, the officers came out and they said, well, we shouldn't be punished because we just did what our leaders told us to do. But they were still found guilty of war crimes and put to death. So that's not, I'm not talking about ju I just did what I was told to do. But there is this, I didn't take any part in it or I didn't have anything to do about it. 
And then there's the question, well, did you know about it? In other words, did it happen on your land, in your proximity, where you have authority? That's the situation of the king of Makeda, because where was the cave? It was on his land, in his proximity, where he had authority. Well, what did he do about it? Did he, did he try to save the five kings who were hiding out in there? No. Does that, because he didn't try to save the five kings who were hiding out in the cave, does that make him an ally to Joshua and his Israelites? No, it doesn't, right? Because he still has that sin in his background. He's still on the list to be destroyed. So nothing has changed about that. And herein lies the problem. Because those who say, I didn't take any part in it, or I didn't do anything about it, I, positive or negative, are still in the same place that they were before the opportunity arose. You follow? Nothing has changed. They've not making a choice of a side by any outward appearance, and so they, they suffer whatever the consequences are for whatever the situation was. I submit to you that, number one, the situation with this king was he knew better. We heard in texts previously that all of the kings of the lands that, Jesus, uh, that Joshua would conquer, right? all of the the lands, the kings and their armies had heard of the Israelites and were in fear. They all feared. And so the king of Makeda, he also had heard. He also knew of the Israelites' approach. Now the army of the Israelites is on his land hunting down the five kings of the allegiance. And what does he do? Nothing. He knew. He knew he had to do something. He knew he should do something. He knew there was a side to be chosen. He knew there was a motivation or something that he should do. And I say, I'll say it this way. He maybe even knew what was right to do. Now, under their laws, what was right for him to do? So not even under the Bible, not what the Bible says. What should he have done under their laws? He should have rescued the five kings who were trapped in the cave. Could he have? Well, Joshua only assigned a small contingent, and they moved rocks, and that's how they trapped them, right? And so he probably could have rescued the five kings that were in the cave. And under his laws, that's what he was required to do. They were kings. And their law said that they were kings placed in place by their gods. And so the god Molech and Baal and Asherah and the others that they worshipped put these kings on their thrones. And by, as, by that standard, that's how he was on his throne. And so by the same authority that he was on his throne, they were on their thrones. So I bought all rights, he should have rescued them. Could he have? Yes. He could have gone there, defeated Joshua's small contingent, opened the cave, and, and, and helped them to escape by all logic, right? Now, we also know that there were times in, in Israelite's history where one Israelite soldier was as good as 200 enemy soldiers. So maybe he wouldn't have saved them. He might have sent 2,000 guys over there, and Joshua had 10 men there, and they would have defeated him. God would have stopped it. We don't know what would have happened. But he didn't. He did it out of fear, perhaps. But he did not do it out of ignorance. He knew better. He knew what the law said. He should have protected those five kings. This was an opportunity to deal a blow to Joshua and the Israelites, and he didn't do anything. Well, like us, the Bible says, for him who knows to do good and does not do it, James 4.17, to him it is sin. So when there is something that is occurring within your proximity, within your knowledge, that's possibly under your authority, in other words, let's say it this way, if there's something occurring that you could do something about, and you don't, and you're aware of it, and have an idea even of what you could do, God says, that is sin. Well, because we are Christians, those of us that are, if you claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you don't intentionally, willfully sin ever. John writes, you will not continue in sin. You will not continue to do that on purpose. You will not practice these things. right? And so if you now know, here is someone, someone I can do something about, they're having a situation, I can do something about it, and I don't do it, 
that sin. And it puts you in the same state, listed with, if you will, with the same allies that you had before the problem began. You could say, well, maybe he didn't know. Maybe he didn't know that they were hiding out in the caves, or, or maybe it didn't, the information didn't occur to him until uh, last moment, or he was still taking it under advisement or figuring out what to do. Well, the fact is, someone knew better. Someone in his kingdom knew better. They knew what was going on at that cave. They saw the many armies of Israel chasing the armies of the defeated kings through the land. There's no way that people didn't know. So someone knew. And he was the king and he was in charge. And so if someone knew, then he was responsible to know what they knew. So now we're back to, there's a, a thing happening in your proximity, in your land, in your, where you reign, have authority, could do something about it, and you, don't, and you don't know it. I can't tell you how many times I've had mature, relatively mature individuals, we're talking about a difficulty and something that came up, and they say, well, I don't know anything about that and I don't want to know. Well, guess what? That doesn't work. If it's within your proximity and it's something you could do something about, you have the ability, you are responsible to know. Well, they didn't call me and ask. Remember, the Gibeonites called on Joshua and asked, and Joshua responded. But I submit to you, this is probably true, that if Joshua had just heard about the situation of the Gibeonites, that the Gibeonites had not actually called out for aid, but if he had just heard about it, if his scouts, his spies, or some guy bringing the mail had told him, hey, they're going up against the Gibeonites, a huge army of five kings, Joshua would have gone. He'd have done the same thing. He'd have marched that rough march over broken terrain, overnight, all night, surprised him and killed him like the beasts that they were, the same as he did having been asked to come. It's entirely possible that they were preparing to march before they ever received the message. We don't actually know that because it's not said in the text, but the bottom line is we know now enough about Joshua to know the commitment that he had made to the Gibeonites, he was going to keep it. And the same is true for you. If you have made a commitment to others that are around you, okay, if you happen to be somebody who knows a certain skill, uh, and I'm not picking on you, but you call yourself a mechanic. That's what you do for a living. People know you're a mechanic. And somebody's got a car problem. And you find out they've got a car problem, and you go, I'm not going to do anything about it. It's their problem, I don't take care of it. I'm not going to do anything about it. And you, know, you might call and find out they don't need help or whatever, but you, you're not going to do anything about it. You hear about it, I don't, if I offer, they're going to take me up on it, and I'm going to have to do some extra work or whatever, and it could be difficult. Or, or maybe I had plans for that day or whatever. You fall under the first category. You know what's right to do, but you're not doing it. That's sin, according to God. Right? Now, again, it doesn't mean you have to fix the car. But no, because you're the mechanic and people know it and you're a brother in Christ, you have a responsibility to figure out what's going on and do what you can, right? And you might not be able to fix the car. It might be a 12, 15-hour job. It just might be outside your ability to do it at that time or whatever. And that doesn't mean you don't have some responsibility, right? Or they might be thinking it's going to be a 12, 15-hour job and they're in a trap. You go look at it. It takes. I remember a time when Tony went and fixed a car. It cost 99 cents that had sat for like eight months unused. And he went there and it cost him a 99 cent part and fixed it immediately. And Tony's not a mechanic, but he found out about it. He's like, I got to do something. And he went and did it. And so what I'm saying is, that's the first category. But now we're, get, we're getting this responsibility to find out about what is under our purview. If you are king of your kingdom, and that's what God makes us, by the way, he is truly our king. And he is Lord of lords and king of kings. He, he puts us in charge of our lives. You have a responsibility to use your life according to what God would want you to do. And so if that's what you did, if he's your Lord and you're responsible to him to do what he would want you to do, then you have a responsibility for everything that's in your proximity. Everything that's on your you're supposed to know when there is something that you're supposed to do. And I'm talking, about, I'm talking right now just about your ability to gather basic information. 
Paul wrote it this way, and I'm actually going to go flip there real quick and read it, so if you want to read it in your own translation, you can, in Philippians 2, and it's back into the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 2. Now it slips by as a phrase, again, something that could be missed. If we weren't careful, I'll read from 2.1, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, that's Philippians I'm sorry, that's 1-1. One, one. There we go, okay. So 2-1 says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction and compassion, and I'm going to stop right there, real quick, just to make sure we understand the context. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, is there encouragement in Christ? Does it say, if you are being encouraged by Christ right now? No, it says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Okay? And when you got saved, at least, if you're a Christian in this room, when you got saved, at least, he encouraged you. Right? And so there is encouragement in Christ. And so on. All of these things on this list are there. There is consolation of love. There is fellowship of the Spirit. These things are real. So he says, if they are real, if any affection and compassion, if they are real, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, uniting in spirit intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's pretty good right there, pretty clear, but he goes on to say, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And it's clear that we are responsible for that which goes on around us. If you don't want to have any more responsibilities than your own interests, then you better move to the top of a mountain somewhere where you're never going to know anybody, never going to see anybody. Get rid of your cell phone, get rid of your social media, get rid of your computers. You better block it out. Because the only way you're going to get to a place where you only have to worry about what you personally have to worry about inside of you, inside this skin, the only way you're ever going to get there is to have no contact with anybody. Well, oh, wait a minute. Doesn't it say love one another? Well, the command is love one another. So I guess if you do that, you'd be breaking that command to love one another. Oh, that's off the table. There is literally no way that we can come to a place not only to be responsible for what we see that we can do something about, the good that we know we can do, but also for that which we hear about or anyone knows about that we know. So our question now needs to be, brother, how can I help you? But not just brother, how can I help you? But brother, Ricky, do you know any way I can help RJ? Brother Mike, do you know any way I can help Tony? <coughs> Brother Tim, do you know any way I can help Chris? Okay? And you say, well, no, now that's weird. I, I hardly know Tony. Well, guess what? It's your job. Because he's sitting 10 feet from you to know that person and to know how you might be going to help them. And if we started doing that, we would build a web of fellowship. And this web of fellowship is like this. Okay, I say to RJ, you know how I can help Ricky? Ricky, do you know how I can help RJ? And now Ricky starts looking for how he can help RJ, and RJ starts looking for how he can help Ricky, and I'm encouraging them to do that. On top of that, RJ may find some way he can help Ricky, and Ricky may find some way he can help RJ, or Ricky may find some way he can help RJ, but he can't figure out how to get it done. He needs a little extra manpower. It's too heavy to lift or too expensive to pay or too much blood, sweat, and tears. And he comes to me and says, hey, you said to me, how can I help RJ? Now I've found a way that I can help RJ, but it's too hard for me. I'm having a hard time feeling it myself. Can you help me? And I say, what is it? And he tells me. I say, oh, that's a little too much for me. Brother Tony, I got this way I can help RJ. Can you help me? 
Help RJ. Help me and Ricky help RJ. And now we build a web of fellowship. And the line's so crossed that when Jesus Christ looks down from heaven, he sees a people that belong to him so interlaced, their joints working together, etc., that they're all growing up in Christ. And what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like the picture that Paul gave us in Ephesians chapter 4 of the church. And we're only two steps in. First of all, this king at Makeda, this one who didn't, didn't openly fight back against them, He didn't surrender his allies. He didn't hide from them. He wasn't trapped by them. Is exposed and destroyed by them without those previous steps because there was something going on that he knew he could do something about. He knew better and he didn't do anything. And even if he didn't know better, someone knew better. It is our job to find and to make a discernible difference in the life of someone near us. Why? Because they are near us. That's it. It's because they are near us. It is our job to find and make a discernible difference. If you have a friend that you have known them for a year and you have never blessed them so that they would go, oh, wow, that was something. You are failing. You are dropping the ball. It is your job to care not only about your stuff, but about their stuff too. I I get it. We get so wrapped up in caring about our own stuff and trying to keep our own ducks in a row that we can never get around to caring about the other person keeping their ducks in a row. But according to Scripture, when you say it that way, you've actually got it backwards. If you would be busy keeping somebody else's ducks in a row and taking care of their issues, your issues will come in line all by themselves. Some of your issues will just go away. Did you know, by the way, that all the recent studies that have been out there for roughly the last 10 to 15 years about coming out of depression, there are three main tools that people use in coming out of depression. The first one is counseling. People go through counseling, and a counselor will help them look at what's causing them to be depressed, what the problems are, what the issues are, and help them move past those issues and help them move on to a productive life. The second one is medication. Medication is necessary for clinical depression. When people have a chemical imbalance in their brain, that it's been proven that your human body cannot restore that chemical imbalance. So if you're clinically depressed and you don't get medication, then that chemical imbalance can never come back in proper line. Now, they found that with counseling and medication, the medication brings it back in, they get proper counseling. Some people, it's a relatively small percent, but some people come to a place where they're no longer depressed and they no longer need the medication. But the amount of people that get off the medication ever with counseling and medication is in the single digits. It's less than 10%, depending on which study you look at. There is a third way that that is applied for people to come out of depression. You know what it is? What is it? Nope. Well, that would do it, but no. That's not one you can actually apply. Okay? He said death. Death is the solution to depression, but it's a bad solution. Okay? So, no. The third one is volunteering, serving. And and this is what's found. If people get counseling and medication and begin to volunteer and serve, the percentage of people that arise out of depression to the point that they eventually get off of the medication is in the 90s percents. 90, 95, 96, depending on what study you look at. So let's let's say 95. 95% of the people, if they take the medication, they get the counseling, and they begin to serve other people, care about and serve other people, 95% of the time they will arise out of depression to the point that they no longer need the medication. Oh, but now wait a minute, let's back figure it for a second, because this is what the studies show. If they don't get the counseling, but they get the medication and begin to serve and volunteer, 
the numbers are still very high. Not in the 90s, but like in the 80-some percentile of people who come from a completely out of depression and no longer need medication. You follow? Okay? So it's still very high. And if they, get, if they don't get medication, but they do get counseling, and they begin to serve and volunteer, the numbers are still very high, 80 to 90%, 75 to 90%, something like that, of people. So now I said, if you have clinical depression and, and the chemicals out of balance in your brain, you can't possibly come out of depression. You can't possibly ever get past that without the medication. That's what science says. But without the medication, with counseling and volunteering, still over 70% of the people came out of depression and never had to take medication. That's crazy. So you tell me, what is the most powerful asset that mankind has about coming out of their own funk? Coming out of a deep depression that has lasted for days, weeks, months, or years. It isn't a depression that you need treatment for until it's lasted a week. That's what they say. Okay? So what is the most powerful one? Well, it isn't the medication, and it isn't the counseling. It's the serving. So when you reach out and begin to serve other people, something happens inside you that begins to solve the problems that exist inside you. I'm not saying that people should not get medication. I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a doctor, right? I don't even have a doctor in ministry, a doctorate in ministry. What I'm saying to you is that studies are showing without a shadow of a doubt that serving other people is the number one way to fix the problems that exist inside you. We have people in this body that can testify to that. When I began to serve, my stuff started coming in line. The more I served, the more my stuff stayed in line. The more I serve today, the more my stuff stays in line. And they can make that testimony. I am one of them, and I will testify before you that when I am in a funk, when I am in a difficulty, when I am in a struggle, if I sit down and counsel with someone, or pray with someone, or preach a sermon, my funk, my struggle, my difficulty becomes a shadow form and sometimes dissolves away to absolutely nothing. Once, about five or six years ago, I was sitting at my desk, and I'd been 15, 20 hours on the sermon and just figured out that the last sermon that I had been writing was not the Sunday sermon. I'd been 15 to 20 hours on that sermon already. In fact, I'm pretty sure I had people outside mowing my lawn, and, and I had my wife was up in the house taking care of the house, and I'm on my sermon. I was like 15 to 20 hours in, and God said, that's not the sermon. I'm like, well, I was really close to done here, God. Are you sure? I'm like, okay, I'm questioning. I'm saying, are you sure, God? That's not the way you want to go. And so God said, no, that is not the sermon. Like, so that I'm back to almost the beginning, starting almost the beginning after 15 to 20 hours. And suddenly, I'm depressed. I'm struggling. I'm angry. I'm like, I've got a life. I just spent 15 to 20 hours trying to find the sermon, and now God says, that's not it. And that means I'm in line for at least 5 to 10 more hours. And it's Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock, and I've got to preach this sermon in, like, whatever that is, 18 hours. And all of a sudden, I'm mentally struggling. And I beat myself up over it for a while more, and I'm struggling psychologically, and I'm going, come on, come on. And God's saying, no, that's not it. No, you're missing it. No, you're missing the point. Not there either. And I've been through 20 texts, and I'm going deeper and deeper into struggle and just feeling like I was upset with God. And the phone rang. I recognized the number. I'm like, I don't want to take that call. I don't have time for this. I could be 12 more hours on this sermon. I don't have time for that person's call. I know what they're going through stuff, but I just don't have time. And I got up and I went like, I literally got up and I put my hands on my head and I'm walking around the chair around my desk and the phone's still ringing. And, I'm, and I hear from God saying, answer the phone. And I'm going, I don't want to answer the phone. Answer the phone. And it went to voicemail. And I'm like, whew, nearly dodged a bullet. Now they're leaving a voicemail. 
And I sat back down at the desk and I said, well, I, I at least better check the voicemail. And I checked the voicemail and sure enough, it was a plea for counsel. It was, help me, I'm in a difficult side. I just need just a quick word to know what to do. I'm looking at the Bible, and, I, and this is the actual thought, and I know this is not what you want to hear from your pastor necessarily. This is the actual thought. I said, well, I can't do this anyway. So I picked up my phone, and I called that person. Forty minutes later, 40 minutes later, I got off the phone. But I was able to give some wise counsel. I was able to listen. I put the phone down, took a little drink of whatever I was drinking, and I said, well, at least I got that right. And I looked at the Bible, 40 minutes later, the sermon for Sunday was written. You understand what I'm saying? I'm just a human being. You're a human being. We are responsible for that which goes on around us. You're responsible to do what you know is right and what is good. You have to do it. And if you don't know it, just because someone that's in your circle knows it, you're still responsible. So when someone's talking about a problem they're going through and you overhear it, now you're responsible. When your wife or your husband or your brother or your sister or your friend down the block wants to tell you about a problem someone's going through, they may be telling you for all the wrong reasons. It may be gossip. It may be slander. It could be all the wrong reasons. They're playing right into the enemy's hands. But now you become knowledgeable of a potential problem that you can do something about. And I don't mean I'm going to go and scold that person or I'm going to go and correct them. If it's that kind of gossip or slander, you need to dismiss it and don't respond. But if it's the kind of gossip or slander where they're saying, well, their car broke down, I have trouble getting to work every day, or someone's sick or whatever... There was a little girl in my son's class at school who had become a good friend of him, his, and he came home from school one day and he said she hadn't been in school all week. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, they said she's sick, real sick. And I said, really? Like, what is it? And he said, well, I don't know. They just said she's real sick. And the teacher mentioned it. And, and he said, and I prayed for her. And so I reached, I, I, I did what I thought was right. I reached out to uh, her mom. And her mom said, yeah, she's been sick. In fact, they, uh, she had a virus and it settled like in her spine or something. And so it's going to be, they think it could be weeks before she's healthy again, and it could be really dangerous. She could, you know, could get bad, and she might have trouble walking. I mean, so we're really watching it really closely, and she's on this super-duper antibiotic, and we've got to give her shots or something. I mean, it was really a bad situation. But she was able to get around and play, but she couldn't be around anybody, and she had a fever all the time. And so this was Arden. I said, Arden, what are we going to do about this? And so we went, and got, went to the store, and we bought four cans of chicken noodle soup and four apples and a gift bag and a coloring book and, a, and markers, and, and she liked to do art. And so we bought this like black velvet thing that you color in, and we put it all in a big gift bag, and we took it down to her house. And he was able to hand it to her. She, she couldn't come out, but he was, she was able to kind of like reach out, and he handed it to her. And then I was able to share the gospel with her mother. And she said, well, yeah, I believe that at one time, but I've not been living for the Lord, I've not been doing it. And she recommitted her life standing there in the doorway of her house. Now, what happens if he comes home from school, and like most parents, and, and I have been this parent many times, he says, hey, there's a kid in my class that's sick, and I say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Or maybe I just say, you know, Lord, help this child that's sick today in Jesus' name. And I feel like I've done my duty because I prayed for this concern. No, because God just put it under my auspices, and I want to throw it back at him and let him take care of it, Right? So the truth is, often you know better, and sometimes someone else knows better that's in your circle, and either way, you're responsible. And so was this king, and he paid for it with his life and all of his people too. Now, there could be a moment in time that there's something that you're supposed to do that nobody knows about. You don't know about it, your friends don't know about it, your family don't know about it, and so that gives us our excuse, right? If you don't know about it at all, 
and no one knows about it that's right near you, then you're excused from doing anything about it, right? Someone say no. Someone say no, there's no excuse still. Because there's still no excuse. So that's not fair. I don't know about this problem, and now I'm required to do something about it. If it's on your land, if it's in your backyard, and I don't mean your physical land that you own as property. I mean, if it's within your reaches, if you could do something about it, you're responsible to know something about it. You say, oh, man, now you're saying i got to be nosy. Now you're saying I have to ask questions. We already said that, but that won't do it, will it? Because I said, if you ask your friend, they don't know about it. You ask your brother, they don't know about it. But you're still responsible. Being nosy won't cut it. Nosy was good enough for the last one. It's not good enough for this one. This one, you got to go to God. Because what does God say? James chapter 1, you know, the, you know a little bit about what God says about wisdom, I would hope. Don't you know what God says about wisdom? Ask. Right? Go to James chapter 1. Look at the context of the passage of James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the context of James chapter 1 is what? Trials, difficulties, suffering, struggles. And how are we supposed to respond to trials, difficulties, and sufferings according to what he just said? Consider it all joy. So we're supposed to consider it all joy when we face all manner of this messy stuff that we don't like because it has a result in us that it may have its perfect result that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then in verse 5, in the context of that, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if God knows what's going on that you need to do, the team leaders understand this, right? When you stop and think about your ministry, what am I supposed to do? God, I'm called to do this. Now, what am I, Brother Tony, you've probably done this many times, haven't you? Lord, what am I supposed to do? I would hope that any mature Christian in this room would say, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And then look to God to answer back to you what you're supposed to do. And then, wait a minute, let's not miss the third step, shall we? Go and do that which God has told you to do. When I was a young Christian, I hadn't been a Christian for more than a year. I read a story, and I read it to the youth group. And some people were, a couple of people were in this room who were in that youth group, so they may remember it. I don't know. But... I read it to the youth group about a young man who was a teenager, and he'd recently gotten his license, but 17 years old, and he left his youth group one night, 17 years old, got in his car or whatever, truck or whatever it was, he was supposed to drive home, and as he was driving, the Lord told him to take a different turn, to turn right instead of go straight toward his house, and so he did. That one first step of obedience, he did, he went right. Next thing you know, he's in the parking lot of the carryout, and the Lord told him to go in and buy a gallon of milk. And he did, and he stood in front of the cupboard, and he said, Lord, one gallon or two? And the Lord said, two. So he bought two gallons of milk. So now he refined what the Lord was telling him to do. He took the two gallons of milk, got back in his car, and now what the heck am I going to do with this? He was older, he didn't really care for milk all that much, he figured he could drink it. And the Lord said, start the car. So he started the car, and the Lord told him where to drive, and he drove up the house, and he pounded on the door. And inside he could hear shouting, a man and a woman yelling back and forth at each other. And it sounded like uh, Hispanic voices. And this is a true story, so I can add that detail. It's not like Hispanic voices. And he pounded on the door one more time. And he's like, Lord, should I just leave? They're fighting. He says, I shouldn't be here. The timing's all wrong. And the Lord said, no, stay right where you are. He's standing there with the two gallons of milk in his hand. The door opens. The man says, what do you want? He said, and everything in him made it want him to run away. He wanted to run down off the steps, jump back in his car, away from this stranger who's yelling in his face. And he's ter terrified, literally in fear for his life. This man he doesn't know yelling at him, bulges and veins in his face. 
And he says, I got two gallons of milk. That's all he could say. He just said, I got two gallons of milk. And the man was taken aback and he, he was struck like he's just smacked in the face with a wet sponge. And tears began to stream down his eyes and a woman came and she said, what is it? And the man just said to her, he's got two gallons of milk. What they'd been fighting out was about was the fact they had no money and they couldn't buy milk for the baby and the baby was crying. So he gave them the milk and he said, thank God I turned right. The Lord wants to use you in the lives of people around you. And, you know, it would, I, I want to say this, Lord forgive me if it isn't right. I think it'd be a little fair, a little unfair I should say, I think it'd be a little unfair if the Lord required you to do whatever you know is good to do and the Lord required you to do whatever anyone around you knows is good to do if he wasn't going to weigh in and show you what's good to do. But this is the blessing. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's exactly what he does. Exactly what he does. He weighs in and shows you what's good to do. So now we know this king knew better. And even if he didn't know better, he should. Someone knew better. And even if he didn't listen to them, he could have listened to God. Oh, but he hadn't been doing that for over 400 years. And he certainly wasn't going to start that day, was he? And then last but not least, I want you to realize as he was a steward of his kingdom and all that was within his proximity, or you could say in his backyard, metaphorically speaking, you are a steward of your kingdom and all that is in your proximity, all that is in your metaphorical backyard. You're responsible for identifiable feelings in yourself and in other people, and then identifiable failings in yourself and in other people. You're responsible for charges brought. Someone says, I need help, you're responsible. Someone doesn't say, I need help, but you become aware of it through someone else, you're responsible. Someone doesn't say, I need help, and no one near you says they need help, you're still responsible because you have become the steward. In the story of Lazarus and the rich man Jesus told, he told about a rich man who lived his life out well. He told about a poor man who lived horribly, really, lay at the gate of the rich man and got no help whatsoever. They both died. Poor man went to heaven. Rich man went to hell. I'm summarizing, of course. The rich man in hell says, oh, I burn in this fire and torment. I can't stand it. Just let Lazarus come. I see him there. Just let him come and dip his finger in the cool water and just dip him on my tongue just one time. What an intimate picture that is, submitting himself to Lazarus who had been the poor man sitting in his gate and suffering. That rich man could have done something about the suffering of Lazarus, but he didn't. He sat there. He could have said, well, I didn't know what to do. That's bull. He could have fed him. He could have clothed him. He could have taken care of him. He could have said, well, yeah, I knew to do that, but I didn't want to do that. He didn't deserve it. Clearly, God was not blessing him. Well, that was obviously not true because look at where Lazarus wound up. Lazarus wasn't suffering for Lazarus' sake. He was suffering for the rich man's sake. The people that are around you suffering, they're suffering for your sake. So you can do something about it in obedience to God. The people that are in struggles, they're suffering so that you can step up, so you can encourage, so you can provide. And if you don't, their suffering will be temporary. Temporary. Can't say the same for ours. Could last a long, long time. But there is one particular phrase in there, one particular moment that Jesus says that really convicted the, listen, the listeners because the rich man goes on to beg that Lazarus be allowed to come back to life and go and tell his brothers so his brothers will not come into that same torment. And this is what the rich man is told. He says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. 
And if they wouldn't listen to Moses and the prophets, then it were not enough, even if a man rose from the grave and told them. But that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He's rose from the grave and told them. He's rose from the grave and told us. That is exactly what Jesus did. And Paul, Paul writes and says in Acts 17, and then Luke later records, that those times before Jesus had publicly come and died, that God had kind of scoffed at all the stupid, insolent, ignorant acts of men. And I, I inserted all of that in the text, right? But he had scoffed at all of that during those times. But now God expects all men to come to repentance. So this is the most original sin. Oh, wait a minute. How can it be the most? What was the original sin, by the way? Does anybody remember what the original sin was? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eve. What was the original sin? Okay, so we got disobedience. It wasn't apples. People say that all the time, but apples don't grow in the Middle East. So it probably wasn't apples, but you're right. The forbidden fruit, right? So we, we say it was disobedience or the eating of the forbidden fruit. Eve lied. She lied before she ate, right? Because she, she, she quoted God as saying that God would not allow them even to touch the trees of the center of the garden, and that wasn't true. God never said that. God actually told them they had to tend the trees at the center of the garden of Eden. Right? But they weren't allowed to eat of the trees, and the day that they ate of it, they surely would die. Right? So we get lying, we get disobedience. Well, let's see what Adam's first sin was in the story, just briefly, and we're coming to the conclusion then. And so, of course, you know we're in Genesis chapter 3. You can go there if you want, you don't have to. And so this is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And I'm going to say to you that it's entirely possible that she has sinned already by listening to this accusation against God. But we're not looking for what her first sin was. We're looking for what Adam's first disobedience, to use that phrase, was. And it says, And the woman said to the servant, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And so she added in the or touch it. And that's what Aaron's talking about. She lied there. So that's a sin too. And it could be her first, but we're not worried about what her first sin is. We're worried about what Adam's first sin is. And it says, And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, of course it was, they all were. And that it was a delight to the eyes, of course it was, they all were. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, ah, now she's been deceived. Now she's been tricked into wanting it more than the other fruit. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also, who, who did what there? She gave also, right? And she gave also. So that's her doing it. I lost my spot. All right. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Where was Adam while the serpent was saying, nah, 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 about God? Right there. right there, right? He was right there. What was Adam's first sin? Oh, well, he didn't know that the serpent shouldn't be talking like that. Oh, yes, he did. He knew what was right to do. He should have shut the serpent up, and he didn't. Oh, he said, well, maybe he knew, maybe he didn't. Well, it's that Eve knew. Clearly she knew because she later gets punished for tearing with the serpent and eating of the fruit. So if he didn't know, he should have known because she knew. And then you say, well, if either one of them didn't know, they both could have known because God knew and walked with them in the coolness of the garden every day 
All they had to do was say, okay, we hear your claims against God, that you say these bad things about God, and we'll take them up with God this afternoon, which is in just a few minutes, and we're going to go for a walk with God in just a few minutes, and we'll ask him about it and see what he says. But they didn't. She took out the fruit and ate, and she gave it to him who was right there, and he ate. And I submit to you, what was going on was going on in his backyard, and what did he do about it? Nothing. This is the sin that is as old as time, doing nothing. That's the sin. And yeah, even after she ate, he could have pushed the, the apple, probably a pomegranate, whatever it was, the fruit, away. But he didn't. Now I'm not even so sure that the original sin that Adam did was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Are you? Maybe the sin was not being a man. Well, sure, allowing his wife to be deceived, not stepping up and taking care of This wasn't even like, it wasn't like his cousin. <laughs> this was his wife. <laughs> you know? Whew. This was his own flesh and blood, according to what God had said. So we come to the conclusion. And this is what we learn from the sixth king. You don't have to be the head villain. You don't have to be the main antagonist. You don't even have to be the bad guy. Jesus didn't come, come to condemn. John 3.17 says Jesus didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to tell you that you are evil or even that you are lost. That was not the message of Jesus. Truth is, you and I were condemned already by what we had done with the Son of God. And the Israelites were being saved, becoming God's people, by their willingness to accept the way that God would make, which they didn't know, but would be Jesus. But let's be realistic. The stuff that's happening, the evil that's being done, the mistreating, the going without, the lostness, the poorness, the suffering is happening right in our own backyard. And it's about time we do something about it. Or wind up like the sixth king with no kingdom at all to speak of. I guess we're going to need more communication, more intentionality, more searching for what needs to be done, how you can help, how you can make a difference. When that serpent began to speak, Adam should have said, Honey, why are you talking to that snake? Honey, is there something wrong in you? Is there a problem? Is there, has there been a problem that you're looking for something more? Because we're going to be talking to God in just a few minutes. God's going to be coming in just a little while. He's enough. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't make any statements. Did he think foolishly in his ignorance that he would be absolved of guilt if he didn't? I don't think so. Because I think by the time she handed him the fruit, he, he already knew he was toast. And now when you look at your life, when I look at my life, how often have we just not shown up and done what needed to be done? How often have we not done the good thing? 
Well, I know there's lots of excuses why not to do them. Sometimes we say we don't know. I'm not sure that's true nearly as often. Because sometimes we try not to know. Sometimes we say no one knew. No one really knew that they needed that help. But it's just because the person who really knew wasn't speaking up or we weren't asking how can we help. God loves everybody. Ask what your neighbor needs. God will tell you. If they're not saved, you know the first thing they need. And then as you're trying to share Jesus with them, you'll find other things that they need. And maybe you can do something about it. Maybe you can enlist someone else to do something about it. Maybe we as a church could mobilize to meet not only our needs, but the needs of the world around us, beginning with the gospel. Oh, wait. Oh, until we as a church mobilize to meet not only our needs, but also the needs of the world around us with the gospel, at least, if not everything else that we can possibly supply, I don't think we are a church. Because I think that's what a church is. Called out of the world, he says, go now and, and preach the repentance and the remission of sins. Tell people that by repenting and turning to God, Jesus can provide forgiveness for all of their sins. And that's something we're supposed to do. Evangelism is the first and foremost need of anyone who doesn't know Jesus. They could be starving to death. And if you give them food, give them food, but don't give it to them without the gospel because feeding them for a day and sending them to hell for an eternity isn't love at all. So we do need to evangelize. We do need to witness. We need to talk. We need to tell Oh, but we're afraid that their needs will be too much for us. If you're afraid that their needs will be too much for you, then you have a real problem in that you're not depending on God. So will people ask me for rent money and I can't pay it? Maybe somebody could have. And if nobody could have, then we just wouldn't. But not knowing about it is no excuse. These evils, they're taking place on the chair right next to you in this very room. They're taking place on the block that you live on. None of us live on this block, but on the block that we worship on. They're taking place in our own backyard. And it's time we started doing something about it. Let's pray together briefly and then we'll have a hymn of invitation to close our service and an opportunity to respond. Father, help us. There's an old saying that says, ignorance is bliss. And now I see very clearly the humor, the sarcasm, the abrupt inaccuracy of that statement. Ignorance is not bliss. It will only lead us to that moment in time at which we will be judged for being willing to be ignorant. That's why visits have to happen. It's why phone calls have to happen. This is just so we can let people know about what's going on in our day and have a little fun text back and forth or something like that. It is so that significant conversations can take place so that we can weigh in on one another's side. You're standing, you're sitting, you're, you're worshiping you today. There's someone in this room that has a, a small financial need. It's 10 bucks or 100 bucks. Or and there's another half dozen people in this room who can provide that 10 bucks or that 100 bucks. And nobody's doing anything because we're all afraid to say, yeah, I have a little bit of money I can share if needed because then we're afraid someone will take it that doesn't need it. Oh, how cowardly we are. Lord, teach us to ask the question, what needs to be done? To discover what needs to be done. And then when and if we run into those things that we feel like we cannot do, because we have not been blessed with you 
from you with the resources to you, that we will enlist others to join us in the task to accomplish that which you have set before us. I remember years ago my wife saying, uh, a saying that she got from somewhere and it really touched my heart. She used to say, if you're the one who first became aware of it, then you're the one most responsible for it. You should just get it done. And it doesn't matter what your calling is or what your title is or whatever. And I know that sometimes that means we have to go to uh, a leader of that area or someone else who has more resources or just, or maybe have to call on our uncle or our dad or our brother or someone in our circle who has the ability. And instead of saying, hey, I can give you a phone number or hey, I can give you... Um, a sympathetic ear and pray for you that it will work out, we can say, okay, we need to rack our brains and figure out what can we do? What is the limits of what we can do? Instead of a 30-second pop-up prayer while we're working or, or while we're eating our dinner or, or when we first got the phone call, maybe we need to go and drive to that person's house, their home, or by their apartment and stand there and pray and pray in their midst or pray with them or take their hands, encourage them, and say, I know God's going to work this out. Oh, but I also know when I hear you saying this because we have built so many things into our lives and we say, well, it seems like we've got everything under control. Everything's good now. So we can adopt a little bit more entertainment or a little bit more enjoyment or a little bit more time-filling activities. And then we spend that time-filling activity time and then we got to use the rest of the time we're supposed to be taking care of somebody else to take care of our own needs. And so then we can rightly say, I can't do anything for anybody else because I'm busy doing it for myself. But when we truly examine our schedule, Lord, we would realize that we are filling our schedule, that we are filling our schedule rather than letting you fulfill it. And maybe we could learn this lesson. Maybe we could, before we turn the TV on, before we watch another program or read another book or play another game, and we could consult you and say, Lord, is there something else I should be doing right now? And I think what we'll find is that there are people who are supposed to be calling, people who are supposed to be visiting, people who are supposed to be cleaning for, or fixing for, or encouraging in a more personal way. And maybe that's why. while it's happening in our own backyard. Lord, help us. If there be somebody here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, not, not truly submitted themselves to you, and not accepted the forgiveness of their sins and begun to live their life for you, then Lord, speak to their heart right now. Call them to yourself. Let them truly be saved. Let them have eternal life as their end destination. They begin to live an abundant life. But show them clearly the one cost of that abundant life is a life lived for you in service and love for others. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior already, we say, I, I am, I am a follower, what I want to do, what the Lord would have me do. And for someone in that category who's convicted that they've not been looking, they've not been searching, they've not been asking the telling questions because they are afraid of the opportunities that will arise to serve or to love, or, oh, and heaven forbid this would be but for some of us it's probably true those who know of a struggle and what good they could do and they're not doing it Lord, let them repent just now and turn to you for lordship and leadership and guidance and say from now on, commit themselves say from now on, whenever I hear about a problem the very first thing I'm going to do is ask how can I make it better 
And then upon reaching an answer to that question, I'm going to do it. I will not hold back. Not if it tires me. Not if it causes me to lose. I will not hold back. Not if it causes me to fear whether I want to, whether I'll be able to do something that I want to do. My entertainment, my joy, my fun for this life is jeopardized. No, even if that would be true, once I know what it is that I'm supposed to do, I commit myself to do it. Let that be our commitment, one and all. Amongst us, and at large. So that we're not just a pebble flashing in the stream, but a roaring wave of your love that touches every one of us and moves every one of us. And also everyone that's in every one of our backyards. Everyone that's in our house. Everyone that's on our block. And as far as you'll take us. Help us, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've made some kind of a decision for the Lord as you were listening to the Lord, or even previously, before you came in here today, or if you're yet making one right now, and as we sing this closing song of our service, this is your opportunity to publicly respond. So when we start to sing, if you're responding, you don't sing, you just come forward. Or if you're still struggling with it, then as you sing, let God work in your heart, in your mind, and then when he tells you to, you come forward. And this is the place where everyone will have an opportunity. It's not because it's the front of the room. To hear, but well, I want an opportunity to hear what God is doing in your life today. You come and proclaim it. Say, God said this to me, and I'm responding this way. I repent of what I've been doing, or I intend to do this, or I'll put this plan in place, or I'm going to be baptized, or I'm going to join, or I'm going to serve, or I'm going to go out. Whatever it might be, you come and tell us what it is. This is the time for God to work in us. Would you stand where you are, and if you're singing, sing, and if you respond, respond.
two things left on our agenda before we pray to close. And the first one, the Lord laid on my heart just, just like 30 seconds ago. This, this came, so it's fresh off the presses, as it were. Second one is, and I'll do it first, is the Lord speaking to you today in some way, and you'd like to share with us right now what's on your heart. You say, right where I stand, there's something i got to say. And you'd say it. Um, I haven't completely figured out what this means yet, but um, you can probably hear I'm sick still. It's been two weeks. I've had a headache for six days straight. I'm on antibiotic, and it's getting better, but it's not gone. And I've been praying, trying to figure out, asking for prayer to balance things in my life. And then I got the sickness. And over the past week, I have spent more time on my couch crying because my head hurt than I have on homework or cleaning my house. And I think it's God trying to teach me a lesson. Because I, in everything that I do, I feel like I still don't have enough time. But there is a lot of things that I do do that I do for God. And I've given up things to do ministry and to help other people but it's not enough. I do it when it's convenient, not when it's not. Um, and I, there have been times recently where I've not done something to help someone else because there are things in my life that I feel like I should be able to get help for and nobody's helping me. And so I've had that barrier, that burden, that evil spirit in me that's stopping me from helping others because I feel like I should be getting help and nobody's helping. And that's not right because God's there. God's helping. There's plenty of things that I could be doing that I'm not doing. And now that I'm sick, I have been in pain just singing this morning. The basic things that I do, I've never had a problem leading worship. I've never been able to, or I've always been able to, even if I was sick, come up here, lead worship, do it for God. It's one of the easiest spiritual gifts he's given me that just comes naturally. And it, it causes me pain to do that. And I've never had that. And that's a wake-up call for me. That it can get worse. That it's not as bad as I make it out to be. And that I need to take a step back and look at what the important things are and make sure that I'm doing the right things at the right time, not just looking at my to-do list and dwelling over what I can't get done. Amen. Amen. That's a good word. And there are two important things that, that the Spirit was saying to me as you were talking. The first one is, how often, man, how often do we do that? Everybody, I mean, uh, we, went, we went to the NF concert, and at NF concert, which was a good concert, it was a really good concert, good facts, good music, I really liked it. One of the things about the NF concert I noticed was he sings these songs about being you know, heartbroken and struggles that he's been through and everything like that. And you got all these guys that were there, uh, and guys and gals that were there at this concert, and they resonate with that music. Like, they think their life is, you know, a, a bag of crap, you know, and they're, and they're like, man, my life is such a bag of crap, but I, at least I got this good music. And I'm looking at them, and they're wearing, like, $250 outfits, and they all drove to a concert that's an hour and a half away from their home and bought tickets, and, and they're all drinking alcohol, and I'm going like, no. Nah. You know, like there's people out there that got, you know, a bag of crap for their life, but I don't think you're it. You know, and like you can resonate with this music and you can say how terrible, and I, I just really, that God really impressed on me that so often we do that. We think about how bad our situation is, but the reality is, 
what you said, which is it can be so much worse. You just don't know. You know, you're doing so much, or, or you could be in such a great place, and then your situation, like we all, if you've got transportation to work, you're better than like 75% of Americans. You know, so you, you know, they're, they're taking public transportation or cabs or Uber or walking. You know, we just don't realize. We, and we're all like, most all of us are like that. We've all got blessings, and they're just huge, huge blessings. And we kind of like, you know, that's just sort of grist for the mill. That's just the way it is. But it doesn't have to be. Your car, your health, your relationship, they could all be gone tomorrow. You could have a day. We, you know how many times we've buried somebody who was a member of this church? We've been planting this church for 16 years, and I'm not trying to provoke the enemy here. Do you know how many times we've buried a member of this church? One. Does that sound right? One time in 16 years? Nobody's been shot, praise the Lord. Nobody's been hit by a car, praise the Lord. One person ever died of cancer. That's pretty low, considering the statistics are saying 50 to 60% of us will have it by the time we die, and like 15 to 30% of us will die from it, right? And we have a wide array of children. We have little teeny children who are in, in, in homes where their parents kind of only barely care for them to older adults who have potentially serious health concerns, and I'm one of those. And so we're blessed. And accordingly, we need to pour out of that blessing to take care of the stuff that's on our, in our priority, you know, that God has given us the opportunity to do. Instead of going, well, I have to gird, you know, guard my sheep and keep things in line. Because the king could have, he might have said, I'm not going to go out there because if I do, or I'm not going to send my men out there because if I do, who's going to come and help me when they attack me? He might have done that. But you're blessed. And you can do it. And then the second thing that I heard you say was um, that there's an opportunity to help. And my guess is there's an opportunity to help in every single house. I'm going to just be completely transparent right now. We're just going to be blunt. We'll lay it on the table. Whitney, how clean is your living room right now? How would you tell me? It's all right. Just be, just be plain. Just tell me. After the sixth bell, not so much. Yeah, okay. So I want you to raise your hand right now if your living room is a mess. Okay. Now put your hands down. Okay, well, you don't count. Put your hand down. Okay. All right. We're just doing living rooms right now. This is an obvious lesson. All right, now I want you to raise your hand right now if you are capable of cleaning someone's living room. And that probably should include those people who just put their hand up, I would imagine, right? Okay, so if we're all capable of cleaning the living room and half of us have a dirty living room, why is that? Because <laughs> just like Whitney, nobody wanted to admit that they have a dirty living room, right? And they're like, well, I can do it. But the truth is, if you align your life in such a way that you're doing what you can do for the Lord and you're really pushing yourself to do that, and if, and if people could trust that, then there's going to be somebody who's got no problem coming and cleaning your living room. Because that's something they can do, and maybe they don't lead worship, or they don't work with the, the team kid, for example, or they, you know, whatever. There's things that they can, you know, and if they can do it when it's convenient for them, they might come at 10 o'clock at night, clean your living room, like, well, we're going to bed. Well, that's your problem. I'm cleaning your living room. You know, you said you needed it done. I'm here to do it, right? And you say, well, I can't clean the living room at 10 o'clock in bed. I got to be in bed every night at 10 o'clock, or I'm tired the next morning. Why? What do you got going on? You're not going to get up for work if you clean somebody's living room at 10 o'clock at night, really seriously? going to get up for work. You get up for work when you stay up too late watching TV, right? Or when you're sick. You still do what you got to do. So you can do what somebody else needs and still do what you got to do. Or you can do what you really enjoy, whatever that is, whatever you're spending your time on, and still do what you got to do. Or you can cut out some of this with really what you really enjoy and you're spending your time on and do what you really need to do and then still do what you got to do. And that's what was impressed with me when I was sick because I've been dropping the ball left and right. With, with my illness and stuff, I, there was, in fact, I cost the church 30 bucks. I'm still debating whether I'm going to pay it or not because I was on the phone and somebody gave me a price for something I was doing and I, and I couldn't hear them. 
And so I thought it was one thing, and it was actually $30 different. Because I didn't hear what they said, and I didn't go, no, wait a minute, I didn't hear what you said. And that was my fault. So I'm still thinking, I'm just gonna, you know, my, I'm a pastor, so I made mistakes, so the church can just pay for that, or am I supposed to donate that money? You know? But somebody else could have made that phone call for me, and we wouldn't have lost the 30 bucks. Because could, they could have said, no, we want it for this price, and it, they would have done it, I almost guarantee it. But I thought the price was that. All right. So the point is, we can work together and we can overcome these things. And that's, there's a need there. And so you got to do it. you got to find a way. Okay? And then I told you there was one thing that was hot off the presses. But does anyone else have a word? Anyone else have a word? Laura's been speaking to you. Go ahead. You know what's so hard is like this guy he's been here three Sundays and he's talking and I'll tell you what you <laughs> we expect everybody easy. to talk around here, brother. So you know, the enemy's just gonna come knocking on my door because I'm sharing encouragement. I'm giving anybody a chance to thank God later and to thank God myself. It's not easy to stand up and talk, and I'm telling you, it's not. I used to cry three hours in my closet before I go out and witness. I'm so scared and depressed to be talking to anyone because I always felt so unworthy and so little before everyone. But I found confidence in Christ like no other. Not only can I share the goodness of God, but I can also share how good he is in my life. And you have a testimony. The word says that Satan was defeated by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. Testimony that never shrink back from death as far as my life depended on it. And the only thing I can do is encourage you right now. And this is so hard. But I, I just, what, two things I heard the other day was by Kirk Franklin. He says, when we're not saying nothing, we're saying something. That's right. And, and so all I can say for me, for you, and I'm going to show you by making a step. If I talk and don't do nothing, I might as well not even preach. But I'm going to start making a step. Peter took a step to Jesus, step by step out of the boat. He didn't jump to Jesus. He didn't come up with a plan. He didn't start crying out to God for a situation. He took a step. Even when you get on a treadmill, if you're, you're overweight, you're slouching, whatever, you don't just jump on the treadmill. You have to respond. You have to resist. You have to do something. So the other thing I encourage anybody, just make a step. Amen. Because the enemy loses ground when you make a step. If you just sit back and say, I'm good where I'm at, Kennedy has nothing to worry about. Amen. You're good where you're at. So right. you just keep on just leaving where you're at. But then when you make a step and you start to find ground and you start to see those promises, you start to move in that way. And the enemy starts to say, hey, I can't even, you know, send some more. And then he can't do it. And then you empower someone else, and then they can do it. And see how it starts to spread? I don't get loud. I'm not trying to, but think about this. <laughs> this is the amazing thing. If someone intercedes for another, I always heard of standing in the gap. If you stand in the gap for another person, it gets the other person to stand in the gap. And when you stand in the gap for the other person, it gets another person to stand in the gap. See, the one thing that the enemy has is when he divides us. But if we come together, you have no idea. I have no idea. God has an idea of what's possible. Amen. So we could sit here contemplating this for the rest of our lives. Or we could just say, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Courageous, but he says again, he says, he says, I am. I'll take a stand. Amen. He, he, what did Joshua say? He's, and it comes to the end of the book. He says, you guys can go live with bang gods. You can do what you want. You can say this. But for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will make a stand no matter what bang gods don't want to. So you just got to make a stand. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
You found something that belonged to somebody else, and instead of keeping it for yourself, you turn it in. Good stuff. All right. Any other word? Okay. So, I'm asking for a commitment from somebody or anybody that wants to for the next seven days out of this. We're going to get real practical for a minute here. Okay? So, for the next seven days, if you can do it for your whole life, that'd be great. That's up to you. Until we come together again next Sunday, I am making this commitment, and I want you to do the same. The moment that you go to indulge in anything that you would consider to be entertainment, so you sit down to watch the TV, or you read a book, or what, anything that you would consider to be entertainment, I want you to not just ask God, is there anything you want that I should do now instead, as I said in my sermon, but I want you to reach out to any three people that you know. It can be somebody in the church, or anybody else. It can be a text, or it can be a phone call. And if you reach out and say, is there something I can do for you? How can I help you? Don't use this as something because they'll say no. How can I help you? And it may be as simple as they'll say, well, you pray for me, I'm going through something or whatever. And if so, then you definitely do that. But if they give you something else, if it's outside your ability, then you enlist somebody else to help with it until you can get it done if you can. Okay? So not everybody has to make it. I'm not saying you have to do it. I'm asking for a minimum of one person in this body will make that commitment. And everybody that raises their hand is making that commitment for the next seven days. Whenever you would sit down to do something that's entertainment, instead of starting, you will first reach out to three people, any three people, coming in your house, church member, message them, call them, anything, and say, how can I help you? And then and get their response before you turn the TV on, before you start reading, before you start playing a game, before you do whatever it is that you would do. That's entertainment. And it might, it might happen to you 10 or 15 times this week. So before you make the commitment, count the cost. But if you, make, if, you, if you do make the commitment, then keep it and watch what God does. So I am making the commitment. And if you raise your hand right now, I'm asking you to make the commitment. All right, so there's one. Anybody else? Before you engage in entertainment, you'll reach out to three people. It could be in your own family or elsewhere and ask, how can I help? Going once. Going twice. Okay, all these hands that are up, just keep them up for one second. God, as we go out, we thank you for speaking to us today. We thank you for loving us the way only you can. We thank you for the witness of the sixth king who's long gone. He didn't wind up thrown in a cave or hung on a tree, but he literally lost his entire kingdom. And uh, we don't want that, Lord. We thank you for what you've entrusted us with, for the minds and the hearts and the ears of the people around us, for the opportunities to serve and what service does for them and for us. And we believe, Lord, that by serving others, by making a difference for other people, even if they say, if we say, how can we help? And they say, there really isn't anything right now. 
um, but you can pray about this, or, or maybe they just say, there isn't anything right now. Just the touch, that one touch, that moment in time where we, we expose ourselves, we allow ourselves to be used, if there's use to be uh, possible there, Lord. And then we, we pray that there will be stories. We pray that there will be witness. We pray that there will be opportunities to serve. And as we go out, remind us that whatever's in our backyard is our responsibility. Whatever's in our life, in our proximity, whatever our people know about, and whatever you know, you know about and are willing to share with us, that it's our responsibility. And that we would take that responsibility as a solemn trust. That we would be great stewards of that which you entrusted us with. And when the Lord comes again, will he find faithfulness on the earth? Well, I pray he will. And I pray he will find it in us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Go ye therefore and be the church.